0: you can find them at megavoice.com or you'll find a link in the show notes and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Hey everyone, this is Jim Baker from Doing Ministry Well and you're listening to Engaging Missions.
1: Welcome to the Engaging Mission show with Brian Ensminger, We are bringing missions home. Each week, we hear from missionaries, ministry leaders, disciple-makers, and church planters as they share about God's work in their lives and ministries. Like us, they are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Brian Ensminger.
0: Greetings, world changers. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show. I'm your host, Brian Ensminger, and today we have Steve Addison returning to the Engaging Missions Show. He's recently published a new book called Pioneering movements, and we're going to take this opportunity to talk about that book. So unlike most of our interviews, we're not going to t- spend a whole lot of time getting to know Steve. If you'd like to, you can visit engagingmissions.com/steve Addison for the more traditional interview, get to know him and what his ministry is about. Now Steve has provided me with an advanced copy of the book to look through, and I'd like to say that it is an amazing piece and I love how it's put together. If you'd like to follow along in the show notes page, you'll find those at engagingmissions.com slash pioneering movements. And with that, let's welcome Steve Addison to the show. Steve, thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, thanks for having me on. So, you've already written two books on movements. How does pioneering movements fit into what you've already written?
2: Okay, well, the first book, uh, Movements That Changed the World, uh, it was an introduction to movements and the characteristics of movements that, that make history and uh, that God uses to multiply disciples and churches. And then the second one, What Jesus Started, took an in-depth look at what Jesus began, what he did, how he trained his disciples, and then how the risen Lord continued to work through the early church and Paul. And so giving a biblical foundation for disciple-making and church-planting movements. And now uh, this book looks—it takes a piece of that biblical uh, perspective and, and goes down deep into what are the characteristics of uh, pioneering movements of leaders who do that and uh, you know, have an apostolic call to multiply disciples and churches.
0: You mentioned in your book that your initial research showed that there were five of these characteristics of dynamic movements, and then you actually added a sixth on your trip to mm-hmm. China. Can you share a little bit more about these characteristics of movements?
2: Well, I'd I studied movements for a long time and came up with these common characteristics, white hot faith, commitment to a cause, contagious relationships, rapid mobilization, and adapt. Methods. And, uh, you know, the book was uh, ready to go. And I'd just come out of a mission trip into China. And I sat down with a couple of guys who've seen movements across uh, the developing world. Uh, Both happened to be called Smith. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I said to them, yeah, I just sort of unpacked these five characteristics. And they nodded and said, yep, that's what we're seeing. And then I said, you know, I've just come out of China and and met with some people, and I I think I'm missing one. And uh, they said, well, what would that be? I said, I I think it's apostolic leaders, you know, pioneering leaders uh, of these movements. And they just looked at me and they said, well, we've never seen a multiplying movement without apostolic leadership. And at that point, I realized there was a sixth characteristic, too late to change the book, and so uh now, uh, I guess it's uh, almost ten years later uh, we've just um written a whole book on that subject of movement leadership.
0: So it would seem like maybe it was God's timing that that got left out and then led to its own book. Is that
2: yes? Yes, I think so.
0: One of the important things I think about a book is also to consider who the book is written for So when we think about pioneering movements, is it written for the layperson, the church planter leaders only who who's who's the key audience for this book. Yeah.
2: Well, it's written for people who are passionate about making disciples because when we talk about movement leadership, obviously there are, you know, those larger-than-life um, movement leaders who who see cities and nations and whole regions of the world. But... Um, there are very few of those. For every one of those, there's there's thousands of people exercising leadership in a movement uh, who have a heart to make disciples, and so it's it's not just for a pastor or uh, somebody who does. It. You know, most movements are lay are lay led. Um, ordinary people are on the ground just. Uh, Sharing the gospel, making disciples, forming groups, planting churches. Most most movements in the developing world, you know, you, you don't get paid to plant a church. That's what a layperson does. Yeah. Um, so it's written for anyone with that heart to multiply disciples.
0: And the the timing of this book, why why is it important for us to have this book now? What what's the what what's the good about the timing?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I've lived most of my life in Australia. I've, I've traveled often in the U.S. and I'm based now in the U.K. Wherever you go in in the Western world, we, we think, you know, it's too hard. And um, we, we think, you know, somehow we've lost confidence in, in the gospel and in God so we need to be reminded of, you know, patterns in Scripture, and we need to be reminded of where we see this happening around the world, but increasingly also in Western settings, uh, in the U.S., in Australia, in Europe. Um, we need to be, to be reminded so that our, our faith grows and, and we turn that faith into action. So it's really drawing on those lessons from Scripture, from around the world, and also from Western contexts now where we're beginning to see emerging movements of disciples and churches. That's why it's so important right now.
0: As I'm thinking about one of the things you mentioned, it's uh, it can sound like a little bit of an indictment to say that we've lost confidence in the power of the gospel, but I can certainly look back over my own life and find experiences where God had to remind me multiple times that his promises were true. Have you found that a lot of people in the Western world tend to feel that way? And if so, have you seen God addressing those in specific ways?
2: Yeah, it's it's everywhere we go and train. Um, you know, wherever you go, this is the hardest place you could possibly be in uh, in order to share the gospel. And, you know, we just hear some of the same things uh, wherever we are in the world, especially in a Western setting. And um, what I've realized is exhortation won't change that. Um this is what really changes people, and we've woven this into the, the, the book on pioneering movements. They, they, they need to, to hear again the stories of Scripture, to hear the stories of those who are seeing breakthroughs. Then they just need some simple training and a step of obedience. And those things sort of um, prepare people the most important shift that got to take place, and that is they encounter God in the harvest. That's the thing that really sets people on fire. It's not, you know, the training helps, um, a supportive environment helps, the stories help. You'd think the scriptures are enough, but (laughs) they help. But what really unfreezes people is when they pull that together and they take a step of a beat, they step out in faith, take a risk for the gospel, and they discover God at work, and they're never the same again.
0: You mentioned that a lot of times these stories, uh, whether they're stories from scriptures or stories from people around us of God's faithfulness, are one of the primary ways that we are encouraged in our faith. And I noticed in the book there are a lot of stories. In fact, I, looking at it, I would say it's almost primarily organized around the lives of some pioneers. Is that, was that on purpose?
2: Yes, I, I, you know, well, some of those early stories we just retell the some of the what we've covered in what Jesus started. We look at what Jesus did. Uh, a new element is we're focused a bit on Peter. So there's some good biblical content there, but a story approach. Mm-hmm. But then we we start telling stories through history and around the world today because I think what as you you've got to lay a good biblical foundation and say look this is what Jesus did the next question is well what does that look like today well here we've got some examples of people who have the the, the word and the Holy Spirit they're stepping out let's let's see what God is doing and I, I think it's that interplay between good biblical uh, foundation and uh, historical and contemporary case studies.
3: Mm.
2: That, because if, if the scripture's true, God's still at work in the You know, Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> he yeah. sent his Holy Spirit. So we ought to be able to tell stories, but those stories are grounded in the God revealed in, in the scriptures and, and ultimately in the pattern that Jesus set.
0: Well, I'd like to shift just a tiny bit. One of the things I noticed was early on. I think in the first chapter, you had a, a really pretty powerful quote about from by Bill Smith about strategy and methodology as compared to finding the right people. And honestly, I think that quote kind of set the stage for for the book. Would you mind building that that idea out for us? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, Bill is one of those um, uh, Smiths that uh, I, I met coming out of China. <laughs> and actually the man that uh, dedicated the book to. He's such a, a great uh, mentor to movement pioneers around the world. And um, he just taught me the importance of uh, methodology is not enough. You know, these are the mechanics of how God works. But what God's looking for are people with the right heart. And um, because ultimately, you know, methodology only takes you so far. Um, this This is a God thing. And uh, so God is at work in us, teaching us uh, how to be effective in our methods, how to follow the example of, of Jesus in in using the effective methods He had. But there's another story going on, and we see this in the life of Jesus, and that is God is sh- the Father is shaping Him. He's fighting a spiritual battle. He's on his knees. You know, he's being tested. Um, Movement pioneers don't don't finish well if all they've got is method. They um, they're, they're, they're going they're in the, they're going to be in the midst of a battle, um, and so God is looking for the right people as as you know far more important than just the right methods.
0: You you also mentioned that after you published movements that changed the world, God really kind of rattled your chain cage rather about knowing as compared to doing. Could you share with us what that experience was?
2: Yeah, it, it was a painful experience, uh, Brian, because uh, God God spoke to me through my wife, Michelle, and that's always a difficult thing for a husband. <laughs> and uh, her challenge to me was, you know, Steve, you've written a great book, but when are you going to do something? And it was a word from God. Um, you know, my, my knowledge, in, you know, I, I knew more about movements than anyone else. I'd just become obsessed for, you know, 10 or 15 years and read everything I could but principles aren't enough unless unless they're married to obedience. And um so even though I'm not the world's greatest evangelist or church planter or movement leader, um, that's no excuse for, for avoiding the Great Commission. You know, everyone's called to go make disciples. And so Michelle and I began going out again into a, a local community of international folk uh, when we were living in Melbourne. And, and, we, you know, this is the thing that changed me. I encountered God in the harvest. I, I saw him change lives, rescue people, see them go into the discipleship, you know, um, that that changed me because I'm now no longer the expert, but I've encountered God, got his heart for people who are far from him. And, you know, I still have, you know, an important contribution to make. That's why I've written this book in terms of ideas and, and reflecting what God's doing. Um, I may not, I'm still not the, the world's greatest uh, pioneer. Um, But I'm called into that and and to lean in even to my weaknesses and see God at work uh, in the harvest field.
0: Wow, that is powerful. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus a little bit on the book. But Steve, uh, thanks so much for what you've shared so far. And for those listening, we'll be back in just a minute.
1: Take your leadership to the next level. It's time for the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions.
3: Hi, it's Scott McClelland, and I'm here with your leadership moment, talking today about motivation. Motivation is key to making a difference and getting something done and shouldn't be minimized in your mind as to its centrality of leadership. It's right there in the middle of leadership uh, and without motivation you will run out of gas, your leadership will wane, you'll find that you uh, don't get the things done and accomplish the things that are in front of you. If we look at the parable of the talents, we can realize that the talents themselves were part of the equation. They were the resource capacity of the equation. But what the individual brought to the equation was motivation. Everything you accomplish in life is a factor of these two things resource or resource capacity and motivation. But motivation is the fulcrum by which results are created, and it's the deciding factor as it pertains to these results. You can have all the resources or resource capacity in the world, but without motivation, nothing much will come of that. Motivation and courage are closely related. They are, these two are inclusive of hope, and determination. Do you have an ultimate expectation of good things to come? That's hope. When your expectations of ultimate good are tested, how deeply your belief runs is revealed. This doesn't happen only to expose your shallowness, but to encourage you to go deeper and find true motivation. If you find that you keep running out of motivation, it might be that what you're using for courage is actually false. Those who can hold on to hope in the face of ultimate testing are those who overcome, those who maintain their motivation. Determination is the capacity to persist in the face of opposition or threat. There are, as we know, and should remind ourselves many and precious promises to those who overcome. I want to encourage you to protect your motivation and also to go deeper in it. Thanks for staying with me. This is Scott McClellan with your Leadership Moment. If you need to contact me or us, please do so on most social media at FXMissions or on the web at FXMissions.com have a good one.
1: This has been the Engaging Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland of FX Missions. If you have a leadership question, please send it to feedback at engagingmissions.com and visit fxmissions.com to connect with Scott and discover how you could be involved in short-term missions.
0: All right, we are back with Steve Addison. We're talking about his new book, Pioneering Movements. We just finished up talking a little bit about the book and the foundation for the book. Now we're going to shift our focus a little bit because... I believe that as an author does the research and writes a book, that they're going to learn some stuff as well. Uh, I find that often I learn things as I'm researching and talking to missionaries and church planters, and I think the same is also true of my day job as I'm working on a, an analysis or presentation. So Steve, what's one thing that you learned as you were writing this book?
2: Well, one of the encouraging discoveries was uh, to come across so many case studies of how of, of a shift where a, a ch- where a church was going from just being a church to becoming a catalyst for movements. And uh, the surprise was a lot of these churches weren't, you know, restructuring or changing dra- drastically, you know, how they do things they were more adding than 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 uh, doing that major restructure. They were more sort of saying, well, let's go pilot something here, release some people to do this or support these ventures, and discovering that, um, you know, local churches were coming alive with these movement principles. And, uh, again, because they were seeing God at work in the harvest. You know, one little... Uh, Uh, Predominantly African church, African uh, immigrants in in the U.S., um, you know, getting a vision to reach African-American communities and Hispanic communities, just a little church of 40, but also encountering churches of thousands uh, that were beginning um, those still large attractional churches. But they began to say, well, how can we reach this community, say, of Nepalese or this inner city? Uh, We'll release a team to go do this. And a a great partnership developing um, between sort of missionary bands of those movement pioneers and and established local churches. So seeing a bit of that, you know, Acts 13, the, the church at Antioch, releasing Paul and Barnabas to go pioneer, seeing some some repeated examples across the the globe of, um, you know, great stories of, of churches fueling
0: movements. It, it, you know, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, uh, as I think through, you know, some of the research that churches would have used back in, say, the 80s or the 90s when they were starting small groups, the, a lot of times the suggestion was basically shut down everything and only do small groups, but that doesn't seem to be what, what's working with uh, developing a church-planting mentality or a church-planting activity out of a, a local church. So uh, were, were there any, I'll call them best practices that you discovered as as churches mm. were doing that?
2: Well, just that example there, you know, typically it's not a good idea to impose change on people. So you don't mandate this for everyone in the life of your church. But you do offer broadly, you know, training in multiplying disciples and groups, uh, eventually in even starting new churches, and expect not everybody will jump on board with this. But let's let's we don't we don't need a hundred percent. We need five percent just to start doing this. We we're not going to impose this on everyone else. But everyone knows everyone knows this is the agenda. We're casting vision. We're inviting into this, and then we're looking to see what God does, and people and giving people the chance to own it and participate to the level that they're willing or ready to. And that just reduces the pushback in change. Uh, Also reduces the risk that that, the change might be destructive or, you know, Mm. you may not do a good job of it. Um, But typically what happens is, you know, a smaller group of people catch the vision for multiplication and the church supports them in that, cheerleads it, and then they slowly just adopt some of the things that they're seeing God do, uh, more by embracing it than, you know, the pastors come back from some conference and now we're going to impose it. That's that's one of the biggest lessons that we've seen. Uh, you know, don't impose change, uh, cast vision broadly, um, offer training to everybody, but pour fuel On the fire of what god is doing
0: wow that's that's powerful and uh, as i'm listening i'm just hearing so much grace and so much freedom in that approach i I think that's wonderful as you're working on the book were there any any things that surprised you as you discovered them
2: yes i think um i think i'd sort of call it the uh, there's this dance going on uh with with movement pioneers uh where there's, on the one hand, you've got the principles. And, you know, we've sort of covered a lot of those in, in the first two books mm-hmm. that I wrote. Um, but the real gap between, you know, my first and second book, the first book was about the principles. The second book brought in more of the practices. So the, su- the surprise was principles aren't enough. You, you've actually... Uh, you've got to train people in the practices. You know how to do discovery Bible study, how to pray for a need, how to um, uh, you know share your story, share a gospel outline, how to lead someone to Christ, how to help a group of new disciples become church. You know these are you know methods and practices, and so you've got to have principles. You've got to have pra- and practices that you're. Actually, putting into action. Um, And then, in the midst of all that, which is what we do, um, God is at work in surprising ways. And, you know, at the end of the day, our principles and practices aren't enough. Uh, And yet, um, you know, God has chosen to work through us, He calls us into this. And somehow there's this dance, this interplay between you know uh, principles of movements between taking action and, and best practice, and at the same time, God is sovereign, and we're partnering with what He is doing, and and so you can't go to one or the other. You you've got to do this dance, and and but at the end of the day, it's a work of God. Hmm.
0: Were, were there any ways that God called you to grow as you were writing this book
2: well it 's my greatest challenge, and that is Steve, stay engaged with people you know you you make sure you 're out in the harvest, sharing the gospel, making disciples uh, it 's not it 's not just a book thing um, and and today that 's still my challenge mm-hmm. um, just because I like the ideas i like I like to infect other people with them. But I also have got to have God's heart for people. I've got to be out there myself.
0: Sometimes in Christian circles we hear things like, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And and you actually shared a little bit about that. I think in large part that statement is true, but I also feel like sometimes we use that as an excuse to accept mediocrity rather than overcoming fear while pursuing excellence. Is there something that we're missing in our understanding of this dynamic?
2: Well, I think, um, you know, movements are a God, it's it's a work of God. And at the end of the day, none of us are qualified. Um, And so whatever gifts or strengths he's given us, we've got, they've got to be surrendered and and, and sort of baptized with his grace and, and love and power. And the, the wonderful thing here is the example for this is Jesus himself as a movement pioneer. I mean, there was no one more qualified than Jesus. <laughs> and yet he's still in the wilderness, uh, led there by the Holy Spirit, uh, being tested. He's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, you know, not my will but yours, Father. There's a great cost for him. And so there is a place for skills and ability You know, Paul's a great example of that. Um, But even, you know, none of us avoid uh, the road that Jesus has been on, especially, Paul would say, you know, those people who are movement pioneers are especially singled out for this, uh, you know, learning that, um, you know, we we discover God's power in our weakness. Uh, So we surrender our, our abilities to him. We work hard, uh, yet at the same time, He's going to do a work in us, and despite our weaknesses and shortcomings, He's going to display His glory. Um, that's, that's the lesson we get from Jesus.
0: You outlined in your book uh, the, the profiles of a number of movement pioneers, people such as Hudson Taylor and quite a few others. Would you mind sharing with us just a little bit of perspective from one of those pioneers, whichever one you'd like? Sure.
2: Well, I'm I'm thinking of Victor Landro because not many people have heard to, heard of him. He was uh, he was a movement pioneer in Colombia, and his qualification for that is that uh, before he came to Christ, he he would bar in a brothel and, and and lived with three three different women, um, and uh, you know a a guy passing out Bibles came came through his his it was quite a remote uh, town in the region of Cordoba. And, uh, you know, Victor's pounding on this guy's door at 2.30 in the morning because he's heard there was a a free Bible available. Hmm. Um, Grabbed the Bible and and off he went. Well, he can't read. (laughs) So (laughs) it stayed in a... In a chest for for a few years until he taught himself to read, and then he's one day he's sitting on his porch uh, reading, and and a like a mobile evangelist walked up to him as just as he's sitting on the porch reading the Bible, wondering about these things, and eventually he came to Christ. So Victor doesn't have a lot of you know training. He's he's taught himself to read. He's got you know. Pretty tough background. I think he had to decide which of the three women he would marry. Those sorts of things. Um, but he was a, a movement pioneer. He immediately started sharing with his mother and father, his ten brothers and sisters. They all came to Christ, um, and within a short time, there there were two to three thousand um, new disciples in that region, and um, all you know through Victor's. Uh, influence. And he didn't settle down just to be the pastor of one group. You know, we we have this model of leadership that is the pastor-teacher, which is a valid model of leadership. But there's something about Victor. He just keeps, he wants to keep pioneering, leading people to Christ, forming them into groups that become church, and then helping them reproduce and circling around those churches, raising up local leaders and checking in on their health and strengthening them. As a result, you know, an unreached area um, was reached with the gospel in in Colombia. And most people have never heard of Victor, um, but he's one of my heroes.
0: In your book, and and we've talked about this a little bit already, I loved what you mentioned about missionary bands and the local church. I think that's critical for our our understanding. Can you build that out for us a little bit?
2: Yeah, we're sort of building on Jesus' example of his mobile missionary band, and then we see the same pattern in Acts with uh, Paul. Initially Paul and Barnabas, but then Paul has always got in partnership with the local churches, he's he's got a core team that are with him a lot of the time. But you know, there's there's something like a hundred people associated that we know their names of associated with Paul's ministry in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. About 30 of them are co-workers either locally or or for a period of time on that uh, mobile ministry of pioneer evangelism and church planting. So Paul is working hand in glove with the churches he starts and forming relationships with other churches like the church in Rome to help him get to Spain. All of this is happening. And we see this pattern in the scriptures and through church history of um, local churches partnering with missionary bands, and um, you know, uh, it's it's healthy when they work in an equal partnership. Yes. So they're not trying to control one another, and they're not trying to minister separate separately to one another. But they're forming a healthy partnership. And Paul's uh, and his band is a great example of that. But uh, that pattern we see repeated time and time again wherever we see movements that multiply disciples and churches, even today.
0: Wow, thank you, Steve, for sharing that. With that, we are going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, we're going to shift our focus a little bit to specific things around application for you as the listener, things that you can pick up from this book.
1: Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. Well,
4: you know, I knew before I went to this country that it was going to be difficult. Um, I knew it would be difficult, but I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what that would look like. Uh, and sometimes it's, you know, you go to a country like this and you figure, oh, my biggest problem, my biggest fear, my biggest whatever is going to be the um, Muslim extremists. Or it'll be hostile government or whatever. But you don't realize that sometimes it's the compilation of the small things that wear on you. Where um, the frustration of learning a language and a culture. Um, and we don't realize as Americans how ethnocentric we are. And it can, you um, know, you have these moments that they're not your finest, that um, it's like, now, you know, like, why aren't you understanding me? Why are it's like, we feel like they should conform to our way when we have to conform to their way thinking and communicating and, and just dealing with each other and that can be really hard and then there's just so many other things that like it, where i live um are constantly sick constantly whether food or water or um those things will wear on you and discourage you um dealing with um the mis- misunderstandings and communication um sometimes cause you like that caused me to not be my finest moment because um, you have a meltdown every now and then you can and that's just human it's the human side um you can get uh, very discouraged and very frustrated and sometimes the very people you love and you've left everything to go and serve there are moments where it's just like ah <laughs> just tell God, take me away, you know? Um, You have to work through those things and they're so difficult um, for us. But I think you kind of go through cycles, you know? And that culture shock is probably that culture shock thing. Um, But God always has a way of turning things around and uh, He gives you grace and He gives others grace where you need it. And um, yeah, because it's it's extremely difficult to be out. Whole new culture, way things. It's one of the things there
1: is. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe.
0: All right, we are back with Steve Addison, author of Pioneering Movements. We've been talking about some of the things that he learned as he was writing this book, uh, some amazing stories of God moving in the lives of, um, of people that you might not necessarily target with the gospel if you were thinking about it, but God moving powerfully in their lives, and also about the partnership between what he calls missionary bands and the local church. Now we're going to shift our focus to some things that you as the listener can apply from this book, but before we do that, I do just want to mention, if you haven't already picked up the book, I would definitely recommend that you do that. Just stop by engagingmissions.com slash pioneering movements. I'll have a link there for you so that you can go check it out on Amazon and, and pick it up if you're interested. Now, Steve, back in the first chapter, you commented that many times leaders are stuck in what they think is the all or nothing syndrome. They, can't, they feel like they can't go forward unless they're all in or 100% committed. Some of our listeners might also feel that way, but you shared Something that gives a lot of grace. Can you share that with us today?
2: Yeah. Well, it's something we've learned about implementing change. That uh, often we we we're paralyzed because we feel like, well, we're going to have to totally reinvent our lives or our ministries or our whole church or denomination before we can do something. Um, so sometimes that paralyzes. Other times we actually start moving into that reinvention and we just get bogged down in in resistance. Uh, a far better approach than we're seeing this pattern again and again is just set aside some time. It might be just an afternoon, an evening, a couple of hours a week, where you're going. You've you know you've got some training, and now with someone else, you're going to step out and begin sharing the gospel, making disciples. Just set aside that time. Don't change everything else, and see what God does. And then what happens then is. Um, you do begin to restructure your life or your ministry, but it's it's the fruit and the overflow of what you're seeing God doing. And on an individual basis, that's true. It's also true for a church. And we're not going to throw everything out. We're just going, we're, some of us are just going to engage in the community in these ways. Now, the stories start coming back. And the church starts getting excited because of what God's doing. And people, you know, begin to make adjustments. So we've just found, you know, just some early steps of obedience within realistic boundaries are the way to go. But be warned, you know, if God shows up, things will
0: change. (laughs) You you also gave a, a caution about exhorting people without training them. Can you fill in the gap on that as well?
2: Yes, and I am the greatest sinner amongst you all in this. And and for years, you know, telling people what they should do, and it's a wonderful way to make them feel guilty. You know, we all know we're supposed to share our faith. We're meant to make disciples. Well, it's almost pointless unless we're training people. And so I just, I you know, it's it's I just ask leaders, okay, you're exhorting. Now, how many of you have in the last six months taught people how to share their story? Taught your people how to share a gospel outline, how to connect, pray for a need, and start talking about matters of faith. How, how to do discovery Bible study with somebody who's interested. Um, these, these are simple skills that, that any disciple can pick up and start using. So pull back on exhorting and, um, and start pouring on training, and then enough training to get people started. Get them started God will work through them, and the momentum will build um, if if you go that way and take the pedal off, off, off trying to make people feel guilty.
0: Uh, on the, uh, the subject of... Training people, uh, just using, just hypothetically, my church as an example, Mm -hmm. I I attend a a traditional church of about 500 people, and let's say that we cast a vision and uh, 20% of those people are Mm -hmm. interested in some kind of training. Should we be concerned if out of that hundred, only a handful of people really seem to get it?
3: Well,
2: that's that's the pattern. Um, I'd say uh, stay the hundred. That if it's the right sort of training, they will all benefit and enjoy the training. That's I mean, we've trained hundreds and hundreds of people, and and other colleagues have done even more. And and the training is wonderful. Um, but it's something like yeah, 10%, 15 percent will say I am going to reorient my life around this. Uh, well, you look for those people and you pour fuel on that fire because they're the trailblazers, the early adopters. They'll help bring others on board. Um, so rather than feeling like well, everybody's got to do what these guys are doing, you just you just start with uh, with those, uh, and you'll be surprised. You don't know who they are till you train. Uh, you know, I, I can think of a grandma that my wife Michelle trained back in Australia, and uh, she'd never shared her faith. Well. You know, it was just the lady on the crossing who she'd passed, you know, every day for the last 10 years or something. She introduced herself, got to know her pretty quickly, and just said, hey, would you like to read the Bible with me? (laughs) That's Mm. all she said. That lady came to Christ and uh, was discipled and uh, is now, you know, going on and following Jesus. So, you know, you celebrate that story of the grandma, who who's and and the rest of the church hears that story and 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 is encouraged by it and, and others come on board
0: back in the second chapter, you mentioned that there are six characteristics of Jesus ministry that were pulled from your book what Jesus started mm-hmm. could you share with us share those with us and help us understand how to apply those?
2: Well Jesus saw reality he saw the needs of people from God's perspective. And he saw the kingdom. He saw what God was going to do and wanted to do. So he he is moved by the heart of God. So first thing is to to see the end, to see God's purposes. He didn't camp there. Uh, He connected with people. So you just see his his calendar was just full of people. Uh, And we can think of the stories, the crowds, the individuals, but he's always out connecting looking for responsive people who are willing to take... He's not just connecting broadly. He's looking for the woman at the well who wants to know more. And through her, he's connecting to a whole people group in that village. Um, As he goes, uh, so he's connecting, he's sharing. And he's sharing up front. He's not waiting six months, you know, till someone asks him a question. He's going to pray for a need. And he's going to share, a, you know, a story, a parable, something about himself, something of the gospel. So he's sharing up front. And then as people respond, he's training, he's training disciples to obey. And this is his great commission, you know, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And so he, it's obedience orientated discipleship. But he's not just winning individuals, he's forming community as he goes, gathering people into community, preparing the way for the birth of the church at Pentecost and the communities that will uh, multiply out of the church in Jerusalem. And so he's gathering and then finally... He's multiplying, the whole time he's multiplying workers. Whatever he's doing, he's training his disciples to do. And whatever he's doing, he's saying, guys, you can do this too. Not just guys, but girls are going at times on the road with him. So they're the six things. He he sees the end. He connects with people. He shares the gospel. He trains uh, new disciples to obey. He gathers communities and he multiplies workers. So That's what a movement looks like, a disciple-making, church-planning movement.
0: That's good. So uh, Let's just say that I'm sitting here in Tennessee, and I'm starting to hear some of the things that God is doing in the world, but I'm starting to feel dejected because I don't feel connected to what God's doing. I don't feel like I'm a part of it. What would you share with someone like me?
2: I'd say, um, you know, get, get some training. You know, find, find somebody who's doing this, um, and, but get some training. And become a seed sower. That's where you start. You know, just learn how to share your story, how to share a gospel story, how to do a discovery Bible study with someone. You know, you, you can learn how to do that in a matter of hours. And then find find some, some teammates or a partner and go, go just have a go with this stuff. Um, you know, pray for a need in someone's life uh, and just say to them, hey, are you near or far from God right now? Would you like to be near? Um and, and see where that goes. So there are some simple things that you can do, but it really helps to um get some training. You could probably find source some training on the No Place Left uh website there in the US or in other other places around the world or come and visit my website and you can find out where training is available.
0: Okay, and you mentioned becoming a seed sower. That reminded me of, I think, what you call different levels of leadership in a in a movement. Can you share with us a little bit about those? Well,
2: this is something I I learned from uh, Nathan Shank, and uh, he's seen multiplying movements in, uh, in in South Asia, and so this is coming out of his experience. You know, at, at level one of leadership, uh, that's seed sower, somebody who's sharing the gospel and. Um, you know, responsive people with a, a view to making disciples. And then um, and we need to train every believer to do that. Uh, and then there are church planters. Now, we're thinking of a big church or a big congregation. This is, this is at, at a movement level, it's just somebody who um, can disciple new believers and form them into a group that can become church, and that is of any size. We're not worried if it's large or small, but somebody who can take a group of new believers and help them discover churches. And then, now we're used to those two levels. Now, in most movements, church planters are lay people. They've just made the task a more entry-level and mobilize everybody. Mm-hmm. But the the level of leadership we're missing in the, le- in, in the West is the church multiplier. And that's somebody who can not only sow seeds, can form a group of new disciples into church, just what Paul did, but these leaders can help those new churches reproduce multiple generations. So this is what we've got to get to in the West. So it's not just church addition, it's church multiplication. These are this is a key leadership position. And then there are two more levels of those leaders who multiply, you know, um, basically going up in levels of complexity, you know, of multiplying streams of churches. Uh, I, don't th- I think they'll need to read the book to get mm-hmm. into the detail of that. The most important thing for people to be aware of is everyone can be a seed sower. Uh, far more people than we realize can be church planters at that basic level. And, and the, the frontier that we've got across in the Western world is how do we raise up leaders who can multiply generations of new churches?
0: Well, Steve, I could probably keep asking you questions about this all day long, but we probably Mm. do need to bring this to a close. Um, First off, where can people get the book?
2: Well, it's uh, published by InterVarsity Press. So, you know, they can go to your site, I know, and follow the links to Amazon. You know, major bookstores will will have it. So there shouldn't be any problem uh, finding copies of Pioneering Movements.
0: Okay. If you could leave us with only one thought for today, what would that be? I
2: think it would be the thought that this is a work of God hmm. that he's calling everybody to. This balance between the the love and the sovereign, mighty power of God that will fulfill, he will fulfill the Great Commission, and yet he calls us to partner with him in that. He's calling all of us to be partners with Him in multiplying disciples and churches everywhere.
0: Well, Steve, that was great. Thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
2: Well, thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to The Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this, along with show notes, by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. Audio editing was provided by Jeff Butterworth of Sound Paradigm Studio. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.